You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. My most recent thing that I watched was on Netflix. Uh, what's it? the was the Jinx? I just watched the Jinx. Oh yeah, what do you think of that? It uh, every so often I watch something that like gives me these really visceral responses in my body. Mm-hmm. I was just getting like chills and like cold. <laughs> it was really intense for me to watch. Yeah. I felt such. I mean, beyond the shadow of a doubt that this man is a murderer and this man is like very dangerous to be out and about in the world, but like such intense empathy and such sadness. Yeah. He was so clearly a man like stuck at this very, very, very young age to me, um, which is maybe like part of what makes life a little less fun or a little different when you go through it as a therapist. You're like, oh, this poor man, like he's stuck in this moment in this like horrible, horrible moment. He clearly wants to get caught. Like he's doing this documentary. He even like when they leave the mic on in the bathroom, Mm -hmm. he even like makes statements like this is it. Like I'm so excited like to be finally get caught. Right. Um, And I just felt empathy for him. I felt empathy for everybody else and wished that like justice will be served on their behalf. But I felt really sad for him. Yeah. There, the fact that he kept on like the first time he got away w- with it, and then like stole a candy bar or whatever it was while he had like hundred thousand dollars. What in his a trunk. little kid thing to do, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what? What is that? Is it like a? Is he being driven by like a need for accountability? Is it like a need to like reach? <laughs> is it somebody who has like total? rich boy freedom in this life looking for boundaries and looking for I mean that could be a total part of it absolutely but for me like the thing that really made the most sense is knowing he was like about seven years old right when mm-hmm. um you know his dad comes into his room is come here you know like look look out the window look at your mom about to commit suicide mm-hmm. and he's like this captive witness to this horrific moment and like face to face with death, like the guilt and like the confusion that a kid that age would feel about that, mm-hmm. um, almost like being complicit in it really made me wonder about him feeling guilty about that death, mm-hmm. like for the rest of his life and mm-hmm. trying to get caught. He has all these like movements to him that just to me yeah. seems stuck at that age or that, to- that point in time, you know? So, so, so are you saying that he feels implicit in his mother's suicide, that the, the witnessing of this, of this heinous act imprinted mm-hmm. itself on him and he, he feels to blame for it? That's what I would, I mean, that's what kind of made sense to me when I was watching it. Yeah. You know, that, and God knows what the hell else was going on before that. Cause like, we're talking about like age seven for him. Yeah. Uh, you know, like people just don't jump off of a roof. You know, what the hell was going on with mom before that? What the hell was going on with dad? That like dad's response is, I'm going to wake my children and make sure that they're witness to this and not also do anything to stop it. Yeah. I mean, there's such pathology going on there. Um, It's just very, very, very interesting. And the other thing that was really surprising to me too is like the way the other family members treat him mm-hmm. like not the nephew like there was that like outspoken nephew who was kind of talking about him but like the ones who are really close to him like the brother and they all just kind of had this like hands-off real fear of him yeah and it made me wonder what kind of a kid he was and it made me wonder how long this kind of shit has been going on yeah um it seems like just a guy that 
has had such profound tragedy. Like it's like, and nobody ever stopped or intervened or like addressed like the fuck up that was all around them. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in, in the way that certain people can end up becoming like an embodiment of all of these like fucked up undercurrents in, in their family environment. Yep. You, you just become kind of like the living thing manifest Mm -hmm. and now your life is playing out this like drama that's been going on for however long. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like what is it, what is it in your mind that then makes him a killer? Like, is there something about like reproducing, reenacting, uh, 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 like the stimulus that he got when he was a kid? Or, or, oh, yeah. And you want to you tie this into some improv or something? Yeah, I'm speaking with Amy Rowe, by the way. <laughs> we'll get into introductions in a moment. But right now we're talking about HBO's The Jinx, which yeah. if you haven't seen it, is there's going to be some spoilers coming up. Yeah, and we're talking about like what it is in a person's heart and soul that makes them a killer, and also improv. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know, we are always trying to figure shit out for ourselves. And I think that people are really, really creative and they find really creative ways to play it out and to kind of like use the world as a lab to figure it out. I used to work with kids for a couple of years who, you know, had witnessed murder, had witnessed suicide, um, had been physically abused, sexually abused, neglected, and they would use play. Like you set them in front of toys and you give them safety and you give them like space and they would just play to figure out what the hell had happened Mm -hmm. to make sense of it for themselves. Sometimes they would just play, um, beat for beat what happened just to witness it and like maybe even feel some mastery over it. Maybe they'd change an element of it. Maybe there'd be some fantasy. Um, but that's how people like come into their healing and that's how people figure shit out Mm -hmm. is they do it over and over and over again. If something happens that is so overwhelming that we don't have the capacity to make sense of it, either it's going to remain stuck and we're going to remain like frozen in that spot or we're going to find a way to move forward. Mm -hmm. I see people doing that in improv all the time in in terms of improv behavior or in terms of like hashing out like life. Well, we do it in life too, right? Don't we like go out and find the person that's going to, you know, like we have whatever issue that we have in our life or our family of origin. And then we go out and we date the person that's going to like continually poke at that wound over and over and over again, or we orchestrate some kind of situation. I think that, um, people do that in improv scenes. Like it's just coming from their minds. It's coming from their souls, the things that they put out there. I've seen people like clearly seem to be like working through some stuff. And I think that that tends to be a really safe, healthy place to do it. Just Mm -hmm. like a kid, in a room with like a bunch of toys figuring something out. I think where it gets really dangerous and where, um, is when we don't have any consciousness into that process Mm -hmm. and when we're doing it out in the world and like it's bringing harm to ourselves or to other people. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing an improv scene, I'll remember really clearly I do a duo show called the Amy and Kristen show. And Kristen had just been mugged very like in a really serious way. Um, in Philadelphia and very shortly after that we were doing a show in Del Close and she actually initiated a scene that was mugging Mm. and there's like a lot of safety in our relationship and nobody else watching the show would have known that but I knew that and I was in on that and you know she did this scene where like she was the mugger mugging me Mm -hmm. you know and acting that out and figuring that out and making sense of what it was that happened. Is part of that also kind of disassociating yourself from your own, from being trapped in reliving the fear and vulnerability of that, that, that mm-hmm. by objectifying herself in that scene, I'm way out of my depths here, 
by the by. Hey, you're human. You're in your depth. Hey, thanks. This is about human experience. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, um, is there something to that where by taking the role of the attacker in that scene, she's able to to replay that scenario and not be the passive participant anymore? Like, are, are you mm-hmm. able to regain a certain amount of control and composure and move on from a traumatizing experience like that by being able to disassociate yourself from just that mm-hmm. intense feeling of being vulnerable to somebody else's power? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you see that with, you know, kids who are like getting hit at home, they'll go to school and then they take on that role of the aggressor and they beat up other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, let me identify with this person that I see is powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, let me remove myself from the role of being the terrorized and let me like work this out uh, for myself in this other way. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Uh, it, mm-hmm. um, we're speaking today. You're listening to the Magnet Theater Podcast, by the by. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my guest today is uh, the amazing uh, Amy Rowe, improviser, psychotherapist. This is a fascinating way to begin this conversation. Yeah. Right? Talking about death, talking about killing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, um, how important is the audience in that formulation? Um, <clears throat> in that formulation of you know people. Well, when you're watching kid, when you're watching kids like reenact mm-hmm. traumatizing scenarios for themselves with their toys and using yep. using play and pretend to to unshackle themselves from the emotional power mm-hmm. that that has. Yeah. It, it, how important is it, is it that they be witnessed in the act of doing it? Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. If you think about something really traumatic happening in the lives of people and you talk to them years after the fact, who's jumping to my head right now are people who survived the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And you talk to them about like the horrific tragedies that they endured. You know, something that's really a part of their stories is that there was no witness or there was a sense of like who was witnessing doing nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it, it's one thing to go through a horrific, tragic event, but if you know that the world is watching and that the world is is going to step in or that the world, at the very least, is going to be right there beside you and say, God, I'm so sorry that this happened. It's a really different experience than, like, people turning their back on you or being paralyzed in fear and not doing anything to mm-hmm. aid you. Mm-hmm. There's no safety in that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are playing out a scene, like a kid is playing out something with toys and you're there just witnessing it and just even, you know, uh, using some statements and narrating a little bit of what you observe and sharing your observations, you're telling that kid, I'm right here with you and I'm seeing this. Mm-hmm. Um, that in and of itself, I think, is really healing. There's something um, pacifying in just knowing that you're being received mm-hmm. by somebody. Oh God, everybody wants, everybody in this world wants to be seen. Right. You know, probably the driving force behind all of us is we really want to be loved. We really want to be cared for. We really want to be seen, seen accurately Mm -hmm. as we really are. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's huge. Mm -hmm. You know, if people miss the mark, if I think for yourself about like telling a really important story and people just completely not getting it, Mm -hmm. that sucks. It's an awful feeling. Yeah. So, so much of, of um, the attraction that people have to the world of improv, apart from maybe just getting the performance bug. But so many of the stories that you hear people saying, you know, along the lines of it being a life changer for them, Mm -hmm. I I think have more to do with being in a classroom of people who are being coached to actually shut up and listen to you for a few minutes. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I think there's something just in that of like learning the skill of being an objective listener to another person and and really taking in what they have to say that that alone keeps people like it it begins a process of like healing for some people. Mm -hmm. 
And if you're in that place where you feel really heard and really listened to, like, you know, if you walk into this classroom and that's where you really experience that, mm-hmm. it's like awakens something in you. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, even without knowing, you're like, I want to be back there. Yeah. I want to keep going back to that. Yeah. I got I to gotta find another $400 to do this again yeah. for another eight weeks or, you know, whatever it is. Um, people just get addicted. People yeah. get so into it. What is your take on... on uh, on the urge to, so you were saying before about replaying certain scenarios over mm-hmm. and over again in order to come to terms or, or make sense of it, figure it out. Yep. We're driven by the need to figure ourselves out. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so what is your take in, in like a non therapeutic situation? Just like, yeah. a, I, I don't want to use this word, but, but like, um, uh, well, yeah, non-therapeutic situation. Just like a, a general average performance situation where someone mm-hmm. isn't really, there isn't like a, a trauma necessarily, but you're still feeling driven by like this urge to self-expression. I think for me, what's got to be in place for it to be a safe and a healing thing versus a non-safe, non-healing thing is just awareness of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because I've been to shows and I've seen things that felt to me... Uh, like, hey, you guys, you've just got to watch this. You guys are, I, I've, I felt in the audience like captive to a story mm-hmm. like that I couldn't get out of and I couldn't escape from. I'm thinking about shows where like people hurt themselves, you know, like do physical things for, for comedy and for laughs where they are harming themselves. And I know that for me sitting there, I feel like, you know, is there consciousness into what's really going on right now? Is there real safety here? Um, and I think that as long as people know what they're doing and are real with themselves about what's going on in that moment, because it's a real thing that people do where they just have this unresolved trauma in their heart and they just tell the story over and over and over and over and over again mm-hmm. and like bring people in on it. That I don't see as like moving the story forward so much. Well, it's like a compulsive thing, right? It, Absolutely. It, you get that with offstage people all the time where they, they need to be heard and witnessed mm-hmm. by you. Mm-hmm. And then you hear them or witness them, and then they continue to need to be heard and and begin drawing. Like there, there's a lack of consciousness yeah. to it. it. It's just the replaying over and over again, and the recasting of people around them over and over mm-hmm. again in the roles of whoever their aggressor happened to be, or or whatever whatever happened to them. Yeah, and, and that's where it, it's a compulsive. I assume unhealthy behavior. It's 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 a toxic behavior for the people around them for sure. Yeah, and then what do the people around them start doing? Treating them. Treating them like they don't want to be treated or right. treating them the same way that a person did in the story itself. Right. You know, which is an amazing thing. That we, but that to me is like, this is like that little kid playing with the toys. A person without consciousness that has something that happened to them on their head or on their heart, an assault that happened that tells the story over and over and over again. And then people start turning their backs on them or mm-hmm. distancing or not returning their calls. They're like using these people as their toys. Mm-hmm. You know, they're reenacting a scenario where something horrific happens and then people don't help them, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's replaying it and that's when other people start to get drawn into it and there's not insight into what's happening. I think the second that person is able to say, look at me just repeating this story over and over again and like the effect that that has on people. This isn't really about me not being believable or lovable or worthy or anything. This is just like me replaying this thing again. Mm-hmm. I need to do something different. I need to look at what that's really about. That's an interesting 
notion that they're using other people the way that you would use toys. Oh, for sure. And, and I don't think people realize that they do it. No, I'm, I'm sure that they don't. Mm-hmm. And if anything, like, there's probably a sense of victimization as well, this feeling of... Because you're not consciously drawing people in to play out this story again. Nope. You're looking for help and you're looking for understanding and you're looking for empathy and you're looking for human mm-hmm. connection. Mm-hmm. But as maybe without realizing that you're putting people into like mm-hmm. uncomfortable situations that they're not comfortable participating in and they begin to kind of sour on you, yeah. you then pick up on, uh, on this narrative of victimization of once again, I'm not heard or whatever. Yep. But that's a two-way street, right? Because if you're using other people like toys, you're not really respecting those people as also having consciousness to them. Mm-hmm. They are your playthings that you're using to tell yourself this story that you seem to not be able to escape. Yeah, and there's another person, you know, God, it would be like exhausting if we all lived every moment of our lives in this way. Yeah. But if somebody's telling you a story, you know, of like their victimization or something, and you've heard it over and over and over again, and you notice yourself starting to feel soured, as you said, to this person, and you don't want to talk to them anymore. How often do we say, I need to tell you something. Whenever you tell me the story over and over again, it feels kind of like a burden to me, and like we need to do some work around this, Mm -hmm. versus I just don't take their calls, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So that's like the other broken part, too, is like people using people as toys, but then people like playing the part that they're assigned. Yeah, and not being Mm -hmm. being mature enough yeah, or conscious enough, or, or like, conscious enough, or or, yeah. or or trained enough to understand the language with which you express yourself. I, I think for you, the thing that you don't want to be caught as is a coward. Mm-hmm. It feels terrible to be a coward in the eyes of other people, and, and I think that whenever you're faced with like a difficult encounter with somebody, it, it is easier to just withdraw. Oh and yeah, do more, the, polite. more polite. More <laughs> polite. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it ends up not really being more polite. You end up causing a lot of trouble. But to actually encounter someone and be that honest with them and know the vo- know the vocabulary, know the language to, to say to them, I need to speak to you about mm-hmm. this. This is how this makes me feel. That's a really either a super hard thing or, or, or brings up some of your own neuroses about your ability to kind of confront scary situations or, mm-hmm. confront, or confront conflict. Mm-hmm. Or it touches on just like a lack of awareness that you have or, or a lack of training that you have or a feeling of your own cowardice. Because, I, I mean, this is something that I, I, I am intimate with. Somebody puts me in a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be part of that situation. My cowardice creeps up on me because I don't want that. I become resentful of my own cowardice. I become resentful of the person who put me in a position to feel like a coward. I don't talk to you anymore. Yeah. And and instead of speaking directly to you or maybe looking at the skeletons in my closet, I just am a jerk who cuts off communication. Mm -hmm. And my guess is loads of people behave exactly like that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think anytime like somebody's really pissing me off or something, anytime anything happens, there's like it's phenomenological, right? Because it's like part you and it's part me. Mm-hmm. Like, what is Lewis giving me? <laughs> is Lewis giving me something that's making me feel inadequate or cowardly? What does that like resonate with that's inside of me? Mm-hmm. Like, what part's coming from what? What can I really do? What can I do differently here? My gut is telling me to get the hell out of here mm-hmm. and to like feel like a coward and to feel all these things. But sometimes even just voicing it. Mm-hmm. I feel like ill-equipped to deal with what you're telling me, (laughs) you know, like I, and I, and I wish, why do you even, you know, here's like a question that like I, as a therapist wonder, why is it your responsibility? You Mm -hmm. know, like 
you know, what is it like to just sit in the, in the face of like a person who needs so, 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 so much. And you have, you feel like you have so little to give Mm -hmm. to just say like, I wish I had more to give you, Mm -hmm. but also there's a world full of people here and I could help you like get in touch with some of them to get what you need. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to look to me only. And I also don't have to feel the burden of like giving you so, so, so much. There's a little bit of like a mixed thing with that though. Right. Cause like on the one hand, there's something very flattering to this suggestion that you have the power to help me. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you're trained enough, you're empathic enough, you're intelligent enough, uh, uh, you have the emotional resources to withstand my my abyss. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so there's something deeply flattering about uh, you're able to fix me. Yeah. And then equal but opposite, there's also something deeply, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, uh, making you feel smaller than than mm. you wish. I don't know what the word, there's a word mm-hmm. I'm blanking on it. I, I, inadequate in, yeah. in, in your inability in a moment to fix a problem or help somebody with a problem. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so you can be addicted to helping people. Sure. I think, and I think this is like part of my becoming a therapist and part of like how I came to be in the world that I learned or, you know, was told that a lot of my value was that I was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And when you come to identify with that and when that becomes, you know, here you are walking around the world thinking like, I'm a helpful person, I'm an empathic person. Those are things that are defined by my relationship to other people. Mm -hmm. So if it's there, it feels great. If it's there and it's overwhelming, it feels like I'm doomed. If it's not there, I feel useless. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's great to be helpful and to be empathic, but you've got to know your limits and you've got to know your boundaries so that you can preserve yourself. You've also got to know who you are beyond that. What in your... In your opinion, how do you define healthy? Mm. Uh, and the mm-hmm. reason why I, I ask this is because it, it, so that very idea of like, oh, people treat you in this way where they value you for certain abilities that you have mm-hmm. and that you pursue that and that helps to, to give you a career or a life path. I think that that's true for, for most of us. Mm-hmm. You're encouraged in certain behaviors and you yeah. feel you feel special for that encouragement and you feel right when you're pursuing that and you know that's a very healthy thing. You mm-hmm. have you have an amazing ability to hear people and and to heal people and you mm-hmm. know taken to an extreme where you're you're addicted to like prove that or mm-hmm. it then veers into unhealthy behavior. Yep. Replaying certain scenarios of your own life over and over again to come to terms with them is a very healthy thing that everybody does. Yep. And then there's a point where it goes too far and it's an unhealthy behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably easy enough to look and be able to say, okay, that seems unhealthy. So what's healthy? Where's Obviously that line is not a clear cut line, but no. how do you know healthy? God, that is such a great question. I think that... Again, for me, it's about consciousness and it's about growth and continually moving forward in life. Mm. You know, God knows that I have and that I probably will slip into places where like things grab at my ankles and like completely mess me up. And I'm not going to have conscious insight at that moment into what's going on. But as long as I have the ability or the resources or the support around me to try to, to create some space to think about it, then I think I'm going to always, that's, that to me is healthy Mm -hmm. because then I've gained something and I've realized by being in this situation, like 
what that is that's happened. Mm-hmm. The other thing you're asking is like from a moment to moment basis, how do I know that I'm being healthy or I'm not being healthy? Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you can say to yourself that you're, you're honestly operating, like you're making a conscious choice, I'm consciously choosing to do this and I'm being real with myself about all that it would be to do every other option um, and I'm choosing this, this thing. I, I just had a conversation earlier today about my show with a person who's going to be on my show, the group therapy show that I'm doing, um, who works in eating disorders. And we were talking about this question about like, how do I know when my relationship with exercise or my relationship with food is healthy or unhealthy? It's a really, really tricky thing because there's messages all over the world saying that one thing or the other is not healthy and like a million things that you could look at within yourself. But really sitting with yourself, trying to get as much insight from people outside of you, other consciences that are healthy and that like can be objective Mm -hmm. and trying to make an educated choice about your behavior. I think Mm -hmm. that to me is what's healthy. Um, A very difficult thing to hear other people to, to be able to receive constructive feedback from other people. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you want it all the time Mm -hmm. and, and we're driven in a myriad of very sneaky ways to get it. Yeah. Uh, Um, uh, but there's real sting, right? When, when Mm -hmm. it's not on your terms, I I think so much of performing is kind of getting feedback from people on your terms and and removing the sting because you have the control in the situation. So then getting insight from people in your life telling you like that, you're, you're, you are going too far or you, you are mm-hmm. hurting yourself or you're not being honest with yourself or, or whatever. Very takes a lot of courage mm-hmm. to receive that. And hard to tell too between what's constructive criticism, sometimes hard to tell between yeah. what's constructive criticism and what's coming from a place of like real love and care yeah. versus what's a person just trying to cut you down or a person trying to... Yeah for many of us, yeah. uh, control you. Well, isn't it also true that as, like, as a person changes, and, and let's, assume, mm-hmm. let's assume for argument that the change is a healthy change, mm-hmm. it, you're, you're moving on, mm-hmm. you're growing, isn't it true that that will frequently adversely affect the people in your life who are kind of caught in the orbit of your behavior oh, patterns? Yeah. And so they're trying to keep you yeah. uh, damaged. They're trying to keep you hurt. I don't know if damage is an appropriate word to use or not. Yeah, I think it is. Anytime you look at a system, it's like peeling back the face of a clock. Everybody kind of fits and has their role and has their shape and has their size. If you change one of those gear pieces, you know, like if I, you know, am drinking to excess every single day and I stop doing that, that's going to change the shape of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody else now has to change and adapt or you know, there's going to be like a major shuffle, a Mm. reshuffle. Like I'm not going to fit in here anymore or other people aren't going to fit in here anymore. Systems really work like groups of people really work like an organism together. And if I'm carrying a lot of the illness for all of us, or I'm the one who's the identified problem and I start getting healthy, that's going to shift a lot of things. Yeah. Mm. To relate it back to improv for a moment. Yeah. Um, One thing that I think is really great about improv is that you develop at least on stage you develop an attitude of okay mm-hmm. a, a, a immediate adaptability oh my god yeah and it makes it easier when people in real life uh, maybe are ready to change or grow that it's not quite mm-hmm. you have the like oh you're not drinking anymore instead of like what the fuck is wrong with you man yeah. uh, uh you know don't give up yet man we're still you know like whatever mm-hmm. you have a little bit more at least in theory of that okay energy of, of flexibility yeah. yeah but i also think uh, um, this is weird. Editing. 
being in the habit of editing on stage hmm. goes for a lot because you, you get in the habit of ending a scenario in order to snap yeah. into a new scenario. And there's something How about wise. that, yeah. right? Like you, your life is a continuum and you begin to become accustomed to see it all as a continuum that you oh, have yeah. no ability to, to make a gear shift on or change the channel on. Yep. But there's something about that ability to edit. I'm in one scene right now that's a really heartbreaking scene, mm-hmm. but the moment that it's called for, I can leave this scene and become the hero of the next thing or whatever it is. I think that goes a long way in, in promoting a more adaptable, flexible state of mind. That's beautiful. I really like that that idea about editing and like what the metaphor or how it maps over onto life. Uh, for me, it also makes me think about boundaries. Mm. You know, a person's ability to be like, okay, that was enough of that. <laughs> like, and we'll have more later. And yeah. We don't have to hang on to this for dear life. And we can allow it to have a little bit of space, like depending on how long you let that scene go on for. Yeah. Um, but I also really like that idea, that, that confidence that like something else is going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I can walk away for this, I, from this. I can stop this. I can end this yeah. thing and go on to the next. Well, there's also that idea of consciousness too. Like, uh, um, I just read Mick Napier's new book, and hmm. uh, uh, it's fabulous. I recommend it to everybody cool. behind the scenes. Cool. Um, and he's very big in that on on a, having a sense of rhythm and variety and emotional and emotional variety for your shows, and and very big on being conscious as a teammate of when a show needs to shift gears emotionally, yeah. when this requires a new energy, mm-hmm. and and that really great shows and really great groups it is not an accident that something wonderful is happening. It's in your grasp. You're making deliberate choices. We've had two loud, angry scenes back to back and the audience is a little jittery. Yep. Time for a quiet, thoughtful scene or time for a really goofy, silly scene. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that thing of consciousness. I can shift gears. You you begin mm-hmm. to recognize that I can I can step into strong mm-hmm. emotions and strong feelings, but I'm able to shift gears and return when I... I'm ready to return. Yeah. It, it, there's something super empowering about that. Yeah. It makes you feel like you have real agency in life. Yeah. If I'm in a shitty place right now and I'm like in a really dark hole of despair, um, that like something else can happen later yeah. is really, really empowering. Or if like, you know, I find myself in a situation, like I'm in a job that I absolutely hate and I go there every day and I feel like my soul is being crushed. I know that I have it within myself. It may be a little bit of time, but like I can get myself out of that situation. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. Do you, um, I've read that as, as like, uh, we as animals have a longer uh, um, period of, we have a longer childhood mm. than most other animals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm our sense of play lasts longer than most other animals. And that play is probably an important part of our psychological makeup Yeah, as like a lifelong ability. I think so. Yeah. So if that's true, it makes sense why improv is such a big phenomenon outside of just people seeking a career in comedy or just looking for a fun way to, to goof around Mm -hmm. because it teaches you how to, or unteaches you the stuff that got you to stop playing to begin with. Yeah. Um, uh, do you think that that like is play part of our lifelong equipment that we're biologically supposed to be using? Have we uh, like has our society has the twentieth and twenty first century kind of <laughs> fucked that up a little bit by over defining what adult behavior is supposed to be like? What do you think? Yeah, I I think that play is a really important part of who we are, and it's a it has a really important psychological, spiritual, emotional function to yeah. it. Um, 
and I think people people like find ways to be really really creative and people find their like secret little ways like it's almost like something that doesn't want to be suppressed a lot of the time here's what I tend to think actually I think a lot of times it like expresses itself during sex because mm. <laughs> I think that's like a a-okay like you're an adult you're supposed to be doing this like people have like really interesting creative sex lives yeah. um sometimes and it's like this appropriate, like sanctioned outlet by society. Like you're an adult, you're in a relationship, you should be doing this. Um, maybe not as appropriate for you to be going out and doing like a goofy art piece mm-hmm. for all to see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, especially if you're in a position or you're, you occupy some role where that would not be okay. Right. Uh, people find ways to do it. I think that we need to be creative. We need to be like saying things. We need to be putting something of ourselves out there Mm -hmm. to know who we even really are Mm -hmm. and to like have that be received and witnessed and like reflected back to us. Mm -hmm. It's a really important part of being healthy and knowing, knowing yourself. Let's talk about your show for a second. Cool. You have a show coming up, uh, group therapy. Yeah. Food and body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and by time this podcast goes up, I got a note from uh, uh, Evan. Uh, uh, this episode will be up before the show goes up. Oh, the show's going to oh, be great. up on Friday, February twelfth, two thousand sixteen. So if you happen to be in our current timeline uh-huh. uh, uh, and it's not that date yet, please go check it out. Um, uh-huh. Let's talk about it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so what is the show? The show is going to be. Um, a funny and also respectful look at our relationships with food and body issues. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have some people performing on the show who are going to do some pieces either relating to their own stuff or their own takes on food and body. Um, Andrea Jones Roy, Molly Kiernan, Shakotha Fields, and Sam Gurowitz are going to be performing pieces about um, some of what they have to say. And it's going to be interesting and it's going to be different stuff. Andrea's going to be doing some circus stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Sam's going to be doing like a comedic song. And after these these folks have kind of performed their pieces, I'm going to have a nutritionist and another therapist come on and we're going to do like a little interview talk about some of these issues um, to help people know how to make sense of them. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so let's talk about body issues for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we feel so ashamed? All the time? <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with us? Well, oh God, there's so, there's so, 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 so much. I mean, I think there's also billions and billions of dollars invested. Of course, yeah. Um, in, it's in certainly this. in the interest of the powers that be oh, that God. we feel terrible about ourselves very- and that we feel incapable of, of, of satisfying our own mm-hmm. pleasure. You, you simply buy less shit yeah. When you're satisfied with the resources you've been provided with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, here's, a, I guess, a better question. Why is it so easy for us to feel so shitty about everything all the time? Uh, because life is really hard. <laughs> like, life is really hard and really horrible things happen to us yeah. um, along the way. And things happen to us that just get, like, lodged in our hearts and our souls. And, you know, they take root and then... God, we develop all this stuff. We develop anxiety. We become depressed. We like drink to excess. We start taking pills. You know, we, we develop like ideas about the way that our bodies look. You know, we tell ourselves these stories. If I just looked this way, my life would be perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, like if if only like I, I could just fix this one thing, then I could have love. Then I would be really lovable. Like really it's not that thing that's making us unlovable. Maybe we've come to feel that we're unlovable or inadequate because of all the stuff that's happened in our lives. And then that thing becomes a, a convenient yeah. single thing to focus on. Oh, yeah. And, and also, you talk about 
Lewis, you'd said about, you know, is it true that when a person begins to change that everybody else around them needs to look at themselves? You know, if I came from a family where everybody was like awful to me and I never felt worthwhile and people really, you know, were, were just mean and hateful and made me feel like I was unlovable, kind of easier for me to tell myself the story in some ways that that has to do with my appearance or that has to do with something that has to do with me mm-hmm. rather than to look at these people who I love the most and I'm closest with in this life and the damage that they've done to me. Yeah. And then to have them accept it. Oh my God, that would be like crazy. That would, that's so much. <laughs> well, it also feels like there's, I simply have more control over, okay, I can change my looks either through diet and exercise or through plastic surgery or mm-hmm. through body modification or whatever. Yeah. I can change myself, but it seems like a real massive mountain to climb to change circumstances that are outside of my control or change other people or change a family dynamic or that's impossible. Sure. So then it's almost like my brain will naturally just seek out what seems possible and tangible and doable. Mm-hmm. And you settle on like, okay, yeah. uh, uh, Eat, eat no eat less yeah um uh or or you know whatever whatever be more fun at at parties or some shit be yeah. the kind of person that you know i you know whatever whatever your vice happens to be mm-hmm. and there's so there's so many i'll use the again the word stories being told about especially according to gender and mm-hmm. i think men's bodies more and more now are really being subjected to the same crap that like women have been subjected to for a really long time so mm-hmm. like welcome to that uh but like that women shouldn't take up so much space that like women shouldn't like need so much food or um, just different ideas about who's entitled to be in what kinds of bodies and who's not. Mm -hmm. And the things that, the things that we say about people, the judgments that we make that like get really embedded in us too, those in themselves are damaging Mm -hmm. and people have to be subjected to that on a daily basis. Like you talk about the person who is in a really big body and who doesn't feel comfortable going to the gym because they're like, I don't want people to be looking at me. Mm-hmm. Every time they get on the subway or every time they walk around, you know, you're in a restaurant and a family might like point over in your direction and like make a joke about the size of your body. God, the, the damage that does day in and day out to you, you know, it just makes it worse and worse. I want to talk about, you said, uh, talk about comedy and respect before, and that, mm-hmm. that is certainly a topic that looms large in the, uh, in the psychosphere. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those interesting balance things because I think some people struggle to be both funny and respectful. It's not easy. I think loads of people don't struggle. This is something I want to say too, because this is a very hot topic right now mm-hmm. and a topic much in need of addressing. Okay. But, but one thing that I think it does distort is there are loads of people who manage to exercise taste and sensitivity. It, it mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think things are as bleak as my God, everybody is fucking horrible and we need to like, is we it? need to police each other now. Yeah. It, 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 that seems to me, to be not true. There's that voice. And then I, I think on the other side, there's the voice, which almost sounds like this abuser to me where it's like, God doesn't, can anybody take a joke anymore? Yes. You know, that, that guy is on one end of the spectrum. Yes. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got the person who's saying, um, you cannot laugh at anything yeah. because that's a form of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And both of, both of those voices end up dominating the conversation. Right. Because it, it's very hard. Both of them are asking for confrontation with their voice. And to a certain extent, rightly so. You need the one to counterbalance the extremity of the other. Mm-hmm. But I think that it, it 
there's a lot of people in the middle ground. And I think comedy is in that middle ground where I, I do think comedy is a form of evolved thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that. I think you think better. <laughs> comedy is a very... Um, evolution has built it into us that there's an intense sense of emotional reward in in laughing and enjoying things. And it teaches you to think better and more clearly and understand things. Yeah. You know, um, but comedy is also, there's a lot of meanness in it and and it, Mm -hmm. a lot of comedy has to do with taking a look at our fears and our, at our ugliness in a safe environment where we get to kind of exercise. There's, there's, there's an element of exorcism to comedy, Mm -hmm. I think. Yes. Um, uh, so, so I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on, because you, you're someone who, you have a really sharp sense of humor. Thank you. I've seen you do horribly, horribly mean, terrible <laughs> things on stage, which is as an audience member, it's like, okay. I'm paying good money to see terrible things happen to these people. Uh-huh. This was a, a quote I, I had in a class a few months ago, and I was so proud of it that now I requote myself mm. pointlessly. But it was about safety, and and the uh, gist of the quote is: we need to create a safe environment for everybody in the room because terrible things are going to be happening to the people that we're creating, and yeah. we need to have an emotional environment that lets people know it's okay. This is pretend. It's not. You know. Yes. Um, so you, you are someone who both has that edge to you, mm-hmm. and there's a tremendous respectfulness and sensitivity and understanding of other people too. Where does that balance lie? What what is your, what is your, what's your point of view on that? It's so tricky. I think. Sorry, it's such a broad, weird question. It is a broad question, but God, I I love it. Uh, There's, this world is a hard, hard place and there's real tragedy to it. I mean, it's, it's, but I also really love being alive. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just that simple. Like, horrible things happen to people in the world. Horrible things are going to happen to characters on stage. Um, and it's just kind of like inviting that in and allowing there for that to exist alongside the joy. That's, to me, what it is to, like, laugh at something that's, mm-hmm. like, horrifically tragic. I think there's a time and there's a place and there's, like, being empathic and responding to what's needed. For me, there's almost, like, in comedy, like, a surrendering to that fact, to the fact that the world can be so horrible and cold. It's like, what else are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. You know, your choices are, and God knows that people have to do this, they need to, like, go into a pit of despair sometimes and just, like, be so angry and be so sad about it. There is also just, like, accepting that that that's that, and that's really fucked up, Mm -hmm. you know? And, like, what can we do about this? Isn't it really fucked? Like, at the end of the day, isn't it really fucked up that we're all here and we're all born into this, like, really temporary existence Mm -hmm. that's, like, a struggle? That's really fucked up. It's comically fucked up. It's really funny, you know? Yeah. And a lot of people don't think about that every day, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a weird thing to be alive. Yeah. It's fundamentally funny and strange. Uh, yeah. If you don't recognize how weird being alive is, you haven't thought about being alive enough. Mm-mm. Because the whole thing is a contradiction. Oh, God. Yeah. Everybody who's listening to this, what if everybody who listens to this goes into a deep existential crisis? They're it's like, okay. <laughs> That's all right, because I think on the on the other end of of an existential crisis, if you really power through it, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think on the other end is a sense of wonder. Oh yeah, you know, like it, I, I I do believe in faith. Mm-hmm. It's the stupidest sentence you could say, but the, the, to it's a, a certain one. degree, 
it's all kind of resting on faith because the whole thing is sort of a miracle. There's got to be a point. Yeah. It doesn't make sense that there wouldn't be. Well, even if there's no point, even if it's, or, or, or even if there's no point in, in our scale of awareness, the kind of thing that we would define as a point, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of the fact it's happened anyway. What are you going to do? Yeah. And there is something so unbelievably weird about that, that it, like, I think modern mankind <laughs> is a little bit out of a touch out of touch with the sense of wonder and a sense of awe. We are. And, and that is probably a, a deeply necessary emotional experience that people have to have from time to time. As mm-hmm. a thinking animal and a self-aware animal or, or a largely self-aware animal, able to confront the bizarre paradox of existence, I, I think that a sense of awe, mm-hmm. uh, define that however you want, is sort of an important experience that has to kind of ground you. It is. And we we fail to get that sense because it's not really part of our daily discourse at all. It's not, Mm-mm. you know what I mean? R- religion is something that's been really bastardized by a lot of real stupid people. Oh yeah. And then really kind of the door has been closed on it by a lot of really smart people who, mm-hmm. who mistake being smart for something else in my opinion. Yes. Yes. And you end up cutting off, I think a really necessary experience of being part of a whole that we are unable to fathom. Oh Yeah. Because if you really let that in, I could I can understand like that could that could really crush you. Sure. <laughs> uh, like, what is it all for? You've got to like look at everything that you're so so invested in. Like, uh, I gotta like do this. I gotta do that. I gotta do that. Um, just these bugs that are put in us yeah. at such a young age. You know, it's almost like playing the board game of life. Mm-hmm. Which I a child asked me to play with them the other day, and I decided, oh, never again, never again am I fucking playing this game. Well, I don't I've never like, played it. What's why? What's wrong with it? Kidding, it like, you have to like pay taxes and shit, right? Well, yeah, so sure. And like we're teaching some lessons about like civic responsibility there. But like you go along the board, and like at the very beginning, you've got to decide if you go to college or if you don't, and that's got <laughs> ramifications about what's going to happen. Fuck you. And then you reach a certain part of the board, and you got to get married. Yeah. There's no way around it. You got to get married at that part, and then you like land on these places, and you've got to have kids, and yeah. you've got to buy a house house like there's just no choice (laughs) and it just kind of is and and then you you at the end of the game you retire and like how you win (laughs) is you retire with the most money (laughs) and it's really fucked up yeah it is it's really it's really messed up I was like I'm not teaching this to my children yeah (laughs) uh but like yeah if you were to really let in uh what the hell sense what 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 really does it in this huge, huge, vast universe mean for me to retire with X amount of money in the bank versus not. And you really allowed yourself to feel in proportion to all else what that meant. This thing that you've hinged so much of your life and your well-being on is now like really reduced. Mm -hmm. So again, you go into that like crisis of nothingness and that abyss. Mm -hmm. Abyss, by the way, and like openness and emptiness, I think is the place of real creativity though. That's interesting. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a lot of that in like the Eastern religions, like the space in between breaths or like emptiness as being the seed of creation. And that's mm-hmm. the place where stuff can happen, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense because if you've got a bunch of old structures and a bunch of old crap in there, there's not a lot of room for you to make something new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also um, creatively, nothing surprising can happen if you're just already filled up with the shit that you already have. Like mm-hmm. the best that you can do is, is, is put a new costume on the action figures yeah. that are already in your play chest a new spin yeah mm-hmm. uh you end up making the same movie over and over again mm-hmm. that's very interesting yeah uh uh yeah I, my favorite 
I'm not going to give the quote because I feel ridiculous saying it because it's written in like early 20th century prose and it sounds foolish coming out of my mouth. But it's, Could you say it in an accent? Uh, no. I can do an accent when I'm not asked to do an accent. And oh, then it, it's, it. the, it's horrible. <laughs> There's a quote from a woman named Dawn Powell who was a novelist in the, like the teens and 20s and 30s um, about tragedy and, and, uh, and comedy. And, and the gist of the quote is that the tragedy of the species is that we're born into death and disease. Our, our helplessness against death and disease. Yeah. Our tragedy is our helplessness against death and disease. And, and our, the, our comedy is in the face of that tragedy, our helplessness against vanity. Oh, yeah. And I love that quote so That's much. Cool. It, it really... Uh-huh. Born into this situation in which, you know, your your, your death and your decay is inevitable and mm-hmm. pain is inevitable mm-hmm. and, and reality is going to win against you every time. Yeah. Born into that, we still have, our, we're helpless against our own individual stupidities and vanities and, and, yeah. and it is totally true. Aren't it, we so cute? <laughs> yeah. And there is something to that. And there's something about like expressing those things on a stage sharing them with each other, laughing at them Mm -hmm. in a way that is both celebratory in that I'm not embarrassed that this stuff comes out of me and and I'm as guilty as anybody of these horrible, fucking stupid, petty, nonsensical, bullshit, egotistical, uh, prideful things and and not being ashamed of that and celebrating it and also recognizing the absolute futility and stupidity of it. Yeah. Uh, There's something to me... I'm sorry to go so like Eastern with this, but let's, I guess, let's go out East. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> I guess there's something like faith based in that too. There's something about like dissolving, getting an audience full of people into a room and watching other people pretend for their amusement mm-hmm. and, and getting out in a safe environment, these jaded, dark, cynical, horrible, egotistical things. Yeah. And I do think that the root of really good characters is their ego. You figure out a character's ego and you, you have your show mm-hmm. made for you. Great. That's a really cool perspective. I like that. I'll defend it in a second. Okay. Sounds good. But there's something to like, we all communally laugh together and, and validate the fact that we see ourselves in some of this behavior, however distorted and exaggerated it may be. It, if there's no element of truth to it, why are you laughing at it? Mm-hmm. So there's something to it that we recognize and also exercising some of the fear or some of the boogeyman of it. If you can laugh at, at darkness, it's not that you make any less darkness in the world, but you're better able to look at it. And you're better able to coexist alongside it. Yeah. And I, I like part of what you were saying too you were talking before, almost like looking at yourself from outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like you getting pissed off about a Facebook post mm-hmm. and then taking a step to your left and looking at yourself getting pissed off at the Facebook post and being like, isn't that so fucking cute? Right. You know, like 40 years from now or 50 years from now, I'm hoping, you know, like I'm not going to be around anymore. And like, isn't it really funny that I'm choosing this? Like, yeah. that's so silly. Yeah. You're not taking away the fact that you're pissed off about the Facebook posts. Yeah. Like that still has to live, but you've got both perspectives there. You're in balance. You're contextualizing the fact that it's a small miracle that you can be that agitated about something so pointlessly stupid. Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, which is really kind of what, I mean, there is something about laughing in the face of, of uh, the vast mystery of it all mm-hmm. that I love. As grandiose as that sounds, there is something about that that it's like you feel alive in that moment. It's great. And I sometimes I, I think about comedy and I'm like, 
okay, I'm like a pretty existential person and I like live in this space and like my internal world is a certain kind of way. How the hell am I going to like connect with other people? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or is anybody ever really going to find like what I find funny? Mm -hmm. But there is something really fundamental about that part of the human condition. Everybody's here for a temporary period of time and everybody's dealing with the same shit, whether they're thinking about it or not. So exactly what you said before, why are you laughing at it? (laughs) They're going to laugh from that part of themselves that knows and from that part of themselves that shares that with you. Yeah. Going back to for a second, you had said earlier about consciousness. Mm-hmm. You had said being conscious enough to have some mental space in which you were able to kind of like think about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I think that's exactly this thing that's hardwired into us to split up into audiences and to watch each other reenact the shit that we do. Yeah. That's exactly what that is. It's creating a space of distance. You're once removed. That's that safety thing. Mm-hmm. I'm about to see something that I may or may not like that is somewhere inside of me probably mm-hmm. uh, or somewhere in my realm of experience. But there's that necessary, the fact that you're an audience puts you just enough outside of it that you can look at it as Mm -hmm. an object Mm -hmm. and enjoy it as an object and not feel like overwhelmed by it. So there's also in that, in that act, it's really an act of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. To, to, To be able to take a step back and watch people behave and watch people exaggerate that behavior is, is a step of, of necessary Distance, yeah, in which you're making yourself conscious of certain things that maybe are just kind of just under the surface or just close enough to you that you're not able to recognize the picture or recognize the pattern or recognize the fact that like oh yeah I do, oh I do go for that extra drink at the end of the night I do date that wrong person I yeah. do I do I am shitty to somebody yeah. like that I do post horrible things like that whatever and doesn't it I, I was just thinking about this before somebody that I'm friends with and I'm blanking on who it was wrote this, wrote a tweet, you know, and it said, um, like I just ate a whole sandwich before going out on this date so that this guy is going to think that I, you know, that I don't have to eat that Uh much food. Uh And there's something about that being said as a joke and that being put out in the world that makes me better equipped to be like, Oh yeah, I did that in my (laughs) twenties. Like I thought that way. Uh, I can own that part of myself now. Yeah. Got it. Exactly. Yeah. I do I do have that wondering too many. I do do that wrong behavior. And you are going to succumb to your weaknesses from time to time. No matter how, how evolved you are, uh, um, you are going to succumb to your weaknesses. And, and, and weakness and cowardice, again, are things that we're like loath to yeah. admit to. Mm-hmm. But there's something about like, I don't know, we share those weaknesses. We recognize those weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And it gives you the ability to, so, so you can succumb to a weakness without having to admit defeat or lose all dignity. Or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's that thing where it's like, I cannot smoke a cigarette. I cannot have a drink. I cannot have a burger. I cannot right. have pasta. Right. Because if I have one, it erodes all my willpower. And I mean, I guess that there's a truth to that, but how much of that is also sort of like a, a, a story that you build up in your mind that you become so afraid of submitting to a weakness yeah. that you have to admit defeat. Oh it, my, it, God, my yeah. weakness, submitting to a weakness means I am a weak person, period. Yeah. Yeah. So if I do this, I'm defined by this rather than, you know what, I overate last night. I drank too much yeah. last night, whatever. I think about this a lot with regards to depression mm-hmm. because I, I, I would say that I was depressed for various points of time, you know, in my teens and like 20s. And 
you kind of like become to believe yourself as like a depressed person or to have this aspect of yourself that's like intolerable or like going to destroy you. And I know that every time that like sadness or despair crept in in my life, I'd be like, nope, nope, nope. Versus like having a balanced relationship with it Mm -hmm. where it's like, I'm just like fucking in despair right now and life really sucks and like nothing's doing it for me. Nothing's making me feel really excited. Um, And like allowing that to be like, that was so important to just allow that in Mm -hmm. Um, versus, you know, it's kind of like your example of like the burger or the, this, like we try to excise these parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. that we can't stand when really that like makes them all the more powerful Mm -hmm. because um, they're, they're not going away. Right. They're not going anywhere. Right. Um, the moment you're allowed to be like, aren't I cute? (laughs) Like when I do this thing or like, there I am having another burger. Like you don't want the burger as much anymore Yeah, and you don't fear it as much anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. You, you, you take back your power, I guess, Yeah. because when you define that burger as your enemy and your weakness, Mm -hmm. all you're doing is feeding that burger with your power. Yeah. That's all it is. You're animating it. You're anthropomorphizing that burger. <laughs> yeah. And in, you, into this gigantic archetypal burger that has the power to defeat you. And, and, yeah. and your weakness is actually because you're feeding your, your vital forces to this idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you begin to interrogate some of those things like, uh, you know, if I ever do this or if I ever like eat a burger and it's like, well, what's so bad about a burger? Mm-hmm. You really like engage a person in those kinds of, it, it's interesting to me, like, and I'm, I'm talking just about personal relationships now, I'm not talking about like any of my clients, mm-hmm. but you know, I'll have a friend or somebody who's like, I just can't, uh, you know, I've, I just got to get rid of like this, like butt or this, these thighs or something. And it's like, what's really so wrong with them? Mm -hmm. People will defend that with such fierce, like, no, that's really the problem. Like, how dare you not take this seriously? Mm -hmm. Like what, even just like gentle, like, well, what's so wrong with having a burger every once in a while? Like what's so unhealthy about it? You know, we've got to have some place to put our stuff and sometimes that becomes about a burger. Yeah. Like if I can just be good enough to like refuse this thing and not let this thing into my life, then I'm going to be okay. Yeah. People will do anything to save themselves, <laughs> you know, and if they believe that that's the path, they will defend that path with all that they've got. It reminds me a little bit of like the Buddhist idea that uh, everybody's born with 87 problems mm. and it's just like a, a a mathematical thing there's no escaping it if you solve one then another one appears it's just it's your destiny to have 87 problems Mm -hmm. um um and and there is that kind of thing where you find like oh my gut makes me horrible looking or Mm -hmm. or my butt's too big or my voice is stupid or or my ear whatever the fuck it is oh yeah uh, uh, and, and that kind of becomes the shorthand for all these other problems that you have. And, and yeah. so now you, you put them onto that one and it's like, well, as long as I avoid this temptation, as long as I'm good, as long as mm-hmm. I'm willful, as long as I'm powerful, as long as I'm in control, I'm able to excise these other, this one thing stands in for my 87 problems. Yeah. Whereas the reality, and I think that the Buddhist idea is much closer to reality. Mm-hmm. The reality is, nope, you have 87 problems. Yeah. Never more, never less. You have mm-hmm. 87 of them. It, it, you know, like it, that That seems much more honest to me. And I think that that's an idea that like 21st century Western 
culture has a really hard time embracing mm-hmm. because we have like the very idea of like dying. Exactly. Dying for us has become like you're a failure if you get sick and die. Yeah. You failed. And if you happen to get cancer, like it just blows my mind, you know, like the heroes who beat cancer. Yeah. About the people who fucking died from cancer, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and died. Like, were they even necessarily doing anything different? You know, yeah. we love to tell a story about people who triumph and come back from death. Yeah. And, and not to deny, uh, like, if you have, if you beat cancer, then I think fucking, that's, I think that's fucking amazing. That's and amazing. You're a rock and star. you are a rock star. But there is something in that language where it's like the cowards who died, the mm-hmm. cowards who succumbed to the cancer. The people who gave up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which it's a really interesting thing because it disassociates us again from the real world. Yep. And the real world is we appear from nothing for reasons that are not fathomable to us. And then yep. we disappear back to nothing or maybe not even that. Mm-hmm. Who knows? That's the reality. We're part of a whole that comes and goes. Yep. That's what it does. Yeah. And, and somehow we've developed the confidence to, dis, to, to protect ourselves in this bubble of our own creation and disassociate ourselves from that. And now we even define dying as like weakness yeah. that we can, we can vanquish. So this idea that like, no, 87 problems are part of your makeup, inescapable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't get rid of them any more than you can tear the skin off your own body. It, they're, they're part of an inescapable whole. That idea, I think... It makes us very uncomfortable. Oh, totally. Because then it's like, what do you mean I have to live with this goblin belly of mine? What do you mean <laughs> I have to live with this? How dare you say I have to live with that? I, you, you are violating my dignity by saying I have to, you know what I mean? Like, right. and, and it raises this like agita. Yeah. I'm speaking as if I'm talking about other people. I'm talking about me. Yeah. But and it, we all hate our shit yeah. more than, like, for me at least, and maybe for you, who knows? It's so much easier for me to sit in a room with a person as a therapist or as a friend or as whoever and see a person's 87 problems and like love them mm-hmm. and see them as a whole and see like the greatness in them. Mm-hmm. And but like their 87 problems are not as bad as my 87 problems. Always. <laughs> my 87 problems are like really bad. Always, and if people yeah. really knew what they were, like they would run for <laughs> for cover. Well, there's also that thing of like guilt too of like I I did something to it goes back to like Robert Durst. Mm-hmm. And what you were saying about him, uh, on some level, I did something to deserve these eighty-seven problems, and oh, I can yeah. never let that. It, it, it's not that my problems are any worse, because then you look at someone with like real problems, and you're like, oh my god. Sure. You know, it's that uh, like Hasidic Jewish thing of like everybody puts their problems in a room, and they get to choose which ones they want to take out, and you'll always take your problems again. Uh huh. It's actually no, it's the opposite of that. Never you mind. would take other people's problems? Yeah. No, well, I think the story goes is that you always feel like other people have it easier. You know, I don't fucking, whatever. I mixed, I mixed stories. Sorry. It's okay. Cut this out, Grant. <laughs> um, you could say it in an accent. Yeah, now, now I can't. I'm putting this smile like that. What the hell point was I making with that? We're doing- oh, yeah. My, I can look at your problems and love you for them. Mm-hmm. My problems, however, are a source of deep embarrassment. It's yeah. not that I have it worse than you, but it's a thing of I my character necessitates that I have these problems and, and my character is this unlovable thing. Yeah. And I can never really show that to you yeah. be, because on some really primal level, I'm going to be excluded from the group if you know who I really am inside. Yep, yep. Which the, the horrible thing about that is I don't even know who I really am inside. It's this guess. It's almost like this childlike guess that like, well, I must deserve 
things aren't right, therefore I must deserve that. Therefore yeah. I, and, and so it, this guess is just this thing that you have not identified or expressed or looked at. Yeah. And that's such a, I mean, that's such kid logic too, right? Like people are treating me kind of like shit. Yeah. So therefore I must be deserving of this. Yeah. Like the, the child doesn't have, just as we like looking out in the immensity of the universe don't have the ability to do this. Like the child doesn't have the ability to grasp like, Really, whether I live or die, or I'm loved, or I'm okay, or clean, or dirty, completely rests in the hands of this one or two person, like mm-hmm. people who are like their own set of neuroses and messed up things. And <clears throat> if you really let that into your heart, like that's huge. Yeah. They could really fuck that up. Um, so it's easier for them, to, for kids, to like look at grownups and say, like, I must deserve this. This is about me, than to really realize that it's, it's hinging on them mm-hmm. and on like stuff that are completely beyond us. So we tell ourselves these vague stories like <clears throat> that I'm not worthy and I'm not lovable yeah. and like I'm always going to be treated this way and this must be true about me yeah. because that's what we're capable of and that's what we were at that age. Well, it's like a biological thing too of like you, you have to trust grown-ups when you're a kid. You have to. Your brain is not formed. You're going to die. So you have to. And you just assume that they know right. And it's not until many years later that you figure out that they didn't know right. Mm -mm. But even by that point, the groundwork's already been laid because there are all these assumptions that are like deep in your mental coding. Yeah. uh, Based on faulty logic or or faulty assumptions. You said something before about like not being lovable. Um that reminded me of another thing I read about how in, in comedy, and I think this goes back to the ego thing about comedy too. If you find a character's ego, you've found what's yeah, funny about that about person. That. Mm-hmm. Um, well, cause y- y- your ego is that which distorts what you see in the world. It's your lens. Yeah. It's your lens. Mm-hmm. And, and that lens has a flaw or multiple flaws in it and flaws that distort it in order to fit, the particular shape of your ego. Right. And so part of what's funny about people is the way that we consistently overreact in the same ways mm-hmm. or the way that we consistently find ourselves in the same unhappy orbits over and over again. Right. And right. it's not funny when you're doing it. It's pathological when you're doing it. But when you notice other people doing it in the right context, it's hilariously funny. Oh yeah. And part of it is recognizing the answer to your problem is right there. Mm-hmm. But this distortion in your lens is completely fucking you up from seeing that you keep on getting in your own way. Yeah. And the result of that behavior over and over again is frequently comedy. Right. Frequently. Comedy is the place though, where we don't see, even if the, even if it becomes a shit show for these characters and it usually does. And mm-hmm. let's be honest, when you see an improv show, you're craving a mess. A <laughs> you want you want it to go as bad as it can possibly go. Yeah. You want things to to be pushed to these extremes of idiocy, right? To pass the point of absurdity. Mm-hmm. You want to see people get into serious trouble up there, and you want to see them get into trouble because following their own line of correct reasoning gets them into trouble. Yeah. Um, but comedy is the place where we love people for that distortion yeah. in their ego you end oh. up that's the thing i so crave seeing that again in you yeah. when we get to the second beat i so want to see you do that thing again yeah. that you're disappointed when they make a smart choice it's yeah. like no that's not what i love about you yeah i love that stupid gross horrible thing about you yeah and, and there's something about that too that's i consider like the ego is like probably the way we live right now distorts our ego in ways that it doesn't have to be distorted mm-hmm. but whatever that's just how we happen to be living 
the ego is one of those 87 problems in my opinion that mm. it's like people have designed ways to overcome it and escape it but i think it's always going to as long as we have to cope with other people it's always going to find its way in somehow yeah we can evolve it and we can like grow but that that growth is like really slow yes very a life so a, slow a lifetime or multiple lifetimes depending on your on yeah. your uh, uh, system of philosophy sure it's very slow uh-huh but being in an environment in which that thing about you is what we love about you yeah. and embrace you defang some of its power and 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 i don't know you 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 turn it to its own advantage yeah i think that's another thing that's so wonderful and empowering about comedy and improv comedy in particular is is yeah. we love the weird thing about you we love yeah. that thing that you're trying to hide don't hide that yeah it's so great that's yeah. exactly what we want to see more of you do and those are the people who are so successful, right? Like I think about people that I love watching. Yeah. If it's not like explicitly put out there, they just kind of embody and like are really connected with those parts of themselves yeah. that other people would not find lovable or that are like weird or that are quirky. Yeah. And I'm not talking about like people who are quirky because quirky is in right now. <laughs> like people who really have that thing about them and who have just like brought it back into the fold and are like, this is one of my 87 things, but I'm not leaving it outside at the door. Right. Like I'm going to live with it and I'm going to play with it. And you get a sense of health from that person though, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's in that way of like, oh, the healthy person is not the one who's escaped their problems. Yeah. The healthy person is the one who's integrated all that stuff and it becomes yeah. a, a dynamic part of their emotional equipment. Yeah. Integration is a great way of putting it you've just brought it all back in yeah mm-hmm. i one you had said at the beginning of this uh, uh, of watching kids reenact their mm-hmm. same stories over and over again and that you see performers reenact the same stories over and over mm-hmm. again um i think that's another thing to just tie it all back into improv one mm-hmm. last time it's another thing about the nature of harold's and second beats and third beats i think yeah um there's something about like uh, um, we return over and over in these multiple beats to find our way back to the games that we're playing mm-hmm. that reflects the way we really do that in real life. That Oh yeah. And, and I guess in an unhealthy situation, you just cannot escape this one orbit. Yeah. But in a healthy situation, you kind of use the power of this orbit to eventually break that orbit mm-hmm. and you end up in another different orbit. Yeah. I guess that's what life is in a way is like, it is. I mean, if I, if I, within my family am a person who always does for others and is completely neglectful of myself and that's like my game, (laughs) you know, it it perfectly maps over with like a Herald or something because then I'm in the office and how do I find ways to let myself be walked all over there? And how do I heighten that by finding my, you know, ways within my marriage and for my children to walk all over me too. And the guy on the subway. Right. (laughs) But what's so brilliant about that in Harold, though, is now you are, you're learning ways to consciously do that. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> you're taking the momentum of habitual behaviors and shifting that momentum into conscious game playing, mm-hmm. which is actually, I mean, it's Smart. like the what most Buddhist thing ever. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You're just think- and like you're having peace with the fact, the fact that that's even what a herald is and that people relate to it and that it's comedic. I mean, there's something to that. We all recognize that as being the truth of yeah. how we are in the world. Yeah. And maybe it is that thing or maybe it's not that thing, but for us, but we know that, that it's that thing for that character and we yeah. can watch them go through it. Yeah. 
Amy Rao, this has been the most delightful of conversations. It's been very delightful. It's been great. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. Thanks for being here. Uh, uh, you can see Amy perform every week on, on Megawatt with Ariana Grande, the uh-huh. real Ariana the Grande. Real Ariana Grande. Uh-huh. We didn't even talk about Ariana Grande or Brick. <laughs> we'll talk about that next time. And uh-huh. then you have group therapy coming up on the 12th of uh-huh. February. At 7 o'clock. Here 7 o'clock. Yep. Friday, 7 o'clock, yeah. February 12th, 2016. Magnet Theater. Uh, I hope, uh, uh, please check that out. If you're listening to this past that date, uh, yeah. get in touch with someone who saw it. And, and I'm, d- I'm doing the Armando Diaz experience a bunch this month, too. Beautiful. I'm doing it three times this month, so awesome. I'll be there, too, on Saturdays. Loads of opportunities to come and say hi to Amy. Yeah. Amy, thanks for being here. <laughs> thank you, Liz. And thank you guys for listening. A couple of other thanks, as always, to our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, to our executive producer, Ed Harpsman, and all of you kind fine, wonderful people for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, please give us a positive shout out on iTunes or any other of the multiple platforms that are expanding on a daily basis. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. We love you to pieces, really. Honest. Buy yourself some chocolate. Do something nice for yourself today. Thanks, Amy Rowe. Thank you. Bye. Bye, friends. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.